Tupac Shakur by Kathy Scott. This is dedicated to Tupac and Biggie, of course, this podcast. Next, we're going to be doing Michael Jackson, so stay tuned for that. But let's get into the book, The Killing of Kathy Scott. And I'm going to start where we think, uh, where I think we left off. Um, I've got a couple of poems at the end I want to read as well, dedicated to Tupac and Biggie and my father, uh, who I miss dearly. As you know, I told you I lost both my parents at my sophomore year at Emerson College, and it was devastating for me. But I miss my father dearly, and this poem will be for him as well. Let's get started in the book. Uh, This is page... 152, and it's chapter Gangsta Rap and the Record Companies. Hip-hop music is really a reaction to the failures and the fallacies of the so-called civil rights movement. A lot of these people say, we can vote now, we can sit in the bus in the restaurant, and we don't own, but we don't own the bus, we don't own the restaurant, so we say F it. That's why you see a lot of the people, white or black, frustrated. White kids are alienated too. They identify with rap and the hip-hop culture. It is the most cutting-edge, most aggressive music out there. It's very rebellious. Historically, white youth have always identified with cultures that were rebellious. Tupac, to me, like Kurt Cobain, the grunge rocker who committed suicide, represented the bleak outlook on life that this generation, our generation, fails. I definitely understand why all these records are being sold. It's like the 60s, except there's no political movement. It's like an anarchy, a bunch of young people, black, white, straight, gay. It's like an individual revolt. I think Pac, more so than anybody, represented that individual revolt. Look at him on one hand, Tupac was the superstar, but on the other hand, he was another young black man in jail. Americans have long been fascinated with the connection between criminal excuse me, criminal life and pop culture. Frank Sinatra and his alleged mobster pals, for example, were immortalized in the Godfather saga. Gangster rap, however, focuses on the young black male segment of society that has historically been ravaged by crime. Gangster rap has been described as a form of release for those living in the ghetto, imprisoned in their own culture. Still, it's mostly the young white people from the suburbs who buy this music. Beneath all the ethnic specificity, these rappers are really imitating the lifestyle of white gangsters, the Reverend Jesse Jackson said after Tupac and Biggie were killed. They have chosen white role models. On the other hand, according to Las Vegas police, rappers and gangs aren't organized enough to imitate the real mob. 
Gangs are considered disorganized, organized crime, Sergeant Kevin Manning said. The mafia has a hierarchy. It's very organized. Everybody knows who reports to whom. It's not that way with gangs. They're organized in their own way. It's very fleeting. Everything they do seems random, but they are very powerful and violent. Metro Sergeant Bill Keaton, who worked for 11 years in Metro's organized crime unit, says that the violence rap singers bring with them from the streets is a cultural thing. Even though they make a lot of money, you can take the kid out of the street, but you can't take the street out of the kid. It's not organized crime. They're brought up around armed robberies and they're pulling guns on each other, Manning agreed. These guys come up from the streets and make millions of dollars. You've got somebody with a gang mentality who has talent, but he can't handle it. Is the hip-hop generation all about violence and degradation? CNN commentator Farai Sidia asked in a Time magazine piece, are we collectively doomed to go the way of Tupac Shakur and Biggie Smalls? I hope not, because I'm a member of that generation. In the weeks to come, as we try to make sense of the death of the two youngest, richest, best-known black men in America, we'll probably succumb to a natural temptation to divide the good kids from the hip-hop kids. I'm not buying it. I grew up listening to hip-hop. In elementary school, I turned my radio to the techno-influenced chants of Planet Rock. Rock, rock to the Planet Rock. Don't stop. An innocent party jams like Rapper's Delight. Oh, Rapper's Delight. Um, hip hop, a hippie to the hippie, the hip hip hop. You don't stop rocking to the bang bang boogie. Say up, jump the boogie to the rhythm of the boogie bee. By high school and college, hip hop was everything from the pop female braggadocia of salt and pepper to the black nationalism of public enemy. Today, in addition to music that ranges from alternative rock to techno, I listen to rough edge rappers like the Wu Tang Clan and, yes, Biggie and Tupac as well. Who's pushing the Warrens? Varus rhymes to number one on the charts. For years now, the largest volume of hip-hop albums has been sold to white suburban kids who've disposed heavy metal and elevated hip-hop to the crown of music most likely to infuriate my parents. The suburban rebellion is wrecked its record-buying taste is voyeurism of what too often is viewed as authentic black culture has contributed to the primacy of the gangster rap genre. The music may be in white America's homes, but the violence is in black America's neighborhoods. That's why we, the hip-hop generation, bear the ultimate responsibility for reshaping the art form we love. Hip-hop used to lift us above the struggles we face. Then it tried to inform us about the the struggles we face. Now it's become one of the struggles we face. I used to tell myself that the thug life portrayed in the music was just fiction. Now it's incontrovertible fact. We can do better than this. If we don't, we're little more than voyeur 
voyeurs of our own demise. While the murders of Tupac and Biggie spurred record sales, the long-term effects aren't good for business. The big record companies and distributors are asking themselves whether the business should continue as usual. The music industry has weathered a storm of criticism for backing gangster rap and its violent lyrics, especially when those lyrics are becoming more and more of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Some industry executives aren't wondering if it's ethical to be in business with unsavory character characters with questionable backgrounds in order to cash in on the lucrative market of gangster rap record sales. The financial stakes are high and the answers are somewhat contradictory. In order to survive, the hip-hop music industry needs to turn its bad boy image around while also maintaining its street authenticity. When Senator Robert Dole, an outspoken moral crusader, singled out Death Row for producing CDs with lyrics that were unfit for the youth of America, Time Warner, Death Row's distributor, severed its ties with the label. The white corporate world of the record industry is what Suge Knight, Puffy Combs, and other black record producers had to penetrate to get their rappers in the mainstream. One rap insider described Puffy and Suge as middlemen, liaisons between corporate America and black rappers. But according to other insiders, the bloodshed has alarmed the corporate bigwigs who have backed the rap record labels so much that they're taking a harder look at who's being allowed to run labels. Let me check the time, America, just one second. Hold on, and we'll continue with the killing of Shakur, of Tupac Shakur, excuse me. And let's recognize that he has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. So that's very good. Yay, Tupac. He deserves it. Now let's see if we can get one for Biggie, huh? Ah, star. And his sister was there, and she was very sad. And I, I understand why. Tupac and Biggie, the greatest rappers that ever lived. Let's continue on with the book. Gangsta Rap and the Record Companies. But according to other insiders, the bloodshed has alarmed the corporate bigwoods who have backed the rap record labels so much that they're taking a harder look at who's being allowed to run their labels. There is an uneasiness with gangster rap even among the black executives and artists. The New York Times wrote in a feature about rap published before Tupac was killed. The sentiment has been enhanced by the recent escalation in violence. On the heels of the murders of Tupac Shakur and Biggie Smalls, some prominent industry executives are privately questioning whether greed is blinding record companies to the increasing body count now attributed to gangster rap. A decision to tone down the music would be a major one with enormous financial ramifications. It could mean less money for the companies, but it could also translate to saving lives. The beat could go on, but a little softer. 
Death Row and Chick Knight have lost Tupac Shakur. Bad Boy and Puffy Combs have lost Biggie Smalls. The future is uncertain for the heads of the two top rap labels. Sugar's in prison. Puffy is free but frightened. As the Death Row battleship sinks into an ocean of bad publicity and management, some of its Star Wars seem to have seen the writing on the wall and are abandoning ship. In 1996, before Tupac was killed, Dr. Dre split acrimoniously with Death World, telling the Hollywood Reporter only days before Shakur's shooting. Gangster rap is definitely a thing of the past. I've just moved on. Meanwhile, federal investigators have been building a racketeering case against Death Row Records by proving alleged links to street gangs, drug traffickers, and organized crime figures, some told the Los Angeles Times. Investigators believe Death Row may have been bankrolled by the notorious Blood Street Gang and East Coast organized crime figures. The investigation involves agents from the FBI, the Internal Revenue Service, the the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, and the Drug Enforcement Administration. Police in Los Angeles and Las Vegas are also reportedly working on the case. So why haven't we found their killers? Huh? According to the Los Angeles Times, federal investigators are determining if members of the Bloods committed crimes while on Death Row's payroll and whether Death Row was launched with drug money or other illegal funds. Shug's association with convicted drug kingpins Michael Harry O'Harris and Ricardo Crockett, both of whom are now in prison, is also being looked at by federal agent, agents. Shug says he knew the men but did not take money from them to launch his company. The feds believe Harris may have helped bankroll death row. And because Harris is serving time for among... Other things, a drug conviction, they believe drug money may have been used. According to a federal grand jury indictment filed in Las Vegas in 1993, Sugar was listed as the 34th defendant along with Crockett and a drug distribution ring in which cocaine was brought in from Los Angeles and sold in Las Vegas. The indictment alleged that Crockett ran the operation, selling the cocaine to his sub-distributors for further sale in the Las Vegas area between July 1992 and May 1993. The indictment also charged that Crockett and others used guns to protect the operation or to rob other drug dealers of money and drugs. Shug ended up with the gun possession conviction and received probation. Crocker was convicted of drug charges and remains in prison. The feds are also reportedly looking at Shug's investment in the now-defunct Club 662 for links to organized crime. On February 13, 1997, a federal grand jury subpoenaed the financial records of Shug, his attorney David Kenner, Death Row Records, and 36 companies including Club 662 and individuals who have done business with them. 
One of Suge's many lawyers is John Spilotro, attorney of record for the 1987 attempted murder charge in Las Vegas. He's the son of the late Chicago mobster Anthony Tony the Ant Spilotro said to be an enforcer and the muscle behind the mob in Las Vegas in the 1970s. Shug vehemently denied the federal allegations of ties to organized crime from L.A. County Jail, where he was incarcerated at the time, claiming he was being targeted because of his race. This is the most outrageous story I have ever heard, he told the L.A. Times. A black brother from Compton creates a company that helps people in the ghetto so what does the government do they try to bring him down Shug's attorney David Kenner also strongly denied allegations of mob ties to the New York Genovese family telling reporters Shug wouldn't know a member of the Genovese crime family if he tripped over him Oscar Goodman a notorious Las Vegas attorney who has made a successful career representing mob figures, went to Los Angeles during one of Shug's probation hearings as a consultant in the, on the case. Now he waits in the wings, ready to represent Shug Knight should the feds bring an indictment down on Shug or death row. Goodman is a partner with David Chestnut, one of the three attorneys who escorted Shug to homicide when he was questioned about Tupac's murder. I went down to Los Angeles as a consultant on Shug's revocation case, Goodman said. I went down there for one court proceeding and counseled with the lawyers who actually made the presentation. The judge, Superior Court Judge Stephen Kazulager, in my opinion, went through the charade of pretending to a fortnight due process and gave the decision. The presentation by defense attorneys couldn't have been better. They walked beautifully through their presentation to the judge. They shouldn't have washed, wasted their time and effort. The judge, I think, enjoyed the media attention, and it was a foregone decision. It was a done deal. Before they even made their presentation, the judge's mind was already made up. The decision was made, and the judgment typed up. On the federal case, if there ever was any federal case, if anything ever came to light federally, I would probably be involved, Goodman predicted. In a standard FBI-style statement, Special Agent John Hoos was the FBI's Los Angeles Bureau, with, with the FBI's Los Angeles Bureau said. We've neither confirmed or denied there's an investigation. End of conversation. But George Colessis, another Las Vegas attorney who has represented Shug, said he got a call from out-of-state FBI agents after Tupac was shot in Las Vegas, questioning him about Shug's business dealings. He said he believes the feds have targeted Shug unfairly. He was definitely a target, Kellis said. I think it has more to do with the image, the image that they manifest. I can tell you I have not seen a shred of any tangible evidence that would indicate to me that he is involved in a criminal enterprise, and I'm not blowing smoke and hot air. 
Tupac's record label made an attempt to cash in on his death by trying to sell the car in which he was shot. After learning that Prima Donna Resorts in Prim, Nevada had purchased the bullet-riddled car in which Bonnie and Clyde Barrow were killed in the 1934 shootout, a representative from Death Row contacted the casino company. Aaron Cohen, a spokesman for the resort, said they weren't interested in buying the car. Cohen explained, it's not a piece of American history the way the Bonnie and Clyde car is. Maybe in 20 years it will be. It is a part of American history. Likewise, the bullet-riddled door of the rented GMC Suburban in which Notorious Big was gunned down is getting ready to go on the auction block but to raise money for charity, not for Biggie's record company. The passenger door was the only portion of the GMC that was damaged in the shooting. The rental company that owns it plans to auction it off for around 3000 or $4,000, a spokesman said said. On top of everything else, on January 7, 1996, Suge, David Kenner, and Death Row were sued in Los Angeles Superior Court by American Express Travel-Related Services. American Express claimed that Suge, Kenner, Kenner's wife Erica, and Death Row Records owed the credit card company upwards of $1.5 million. American Express alleged Bruce breach of contract and sought payment in full plus court costs, attorney's fees, and prejudgment interest. The court documents itemized death row's expenses and including those charged while Tupac lay in a coma at University Medical Center, a paper trail that leads to limousine services, pricey hotel rooms, and private planes. Kenner held both gold and platinum American Express accounts. Erica Kenner was also a signatory on one of the cards. Sugar and Death Row employees were authorized to make charges on the platinum account, but only with Kenner's approval, the New York Times in Los Angeles reported. American Express stated in an suit that all parties had customarily used and paid for charges before October 1996 on Kenner's cards with no objection. Kenner paid for his and his wife's expenses regularly and promptly, the credit card company said. Death Row debts were paid for with checks from Death Row's corporate account, which was administered by Kenner, the newspaper, New Times learned from a civil suit against Suge filed by Dr. Dre. Kenner told the Los Angeles Times that the disputed charges were put on these credit cards without the authorization of Mr. Knight or myself for expenditures that had nothing to do with us. Some of the charges, are, however, included fight tickets for the Tyson-Seldon match on September 7th. The American Express bills were sent directly to Kenner's Encino, California law offices, the New York Times reported. 
13 pages in the suit itemized the expenses charged from June to September 1996. Kenneth White charged $3,763.69 to dial a mattress, bed, bath, and beyond, Nobody Beats the Wiz, and the NYU Book Center in New York City, and Ralph Lauren and Barry's in Beverly Hills. Also included was airfare to New York City. These charges appear to be personal and household items to outfit Eric Kenner and her home at the expense of death row records. Las Vegas-related expenses included chartered jets at the cost of $42,279.86 from JetWest International on September 4th and September 7th, plus jet refuel charges of $23,042.88 from Spirit Aviation. Kenner also reportedly charged airfare of one hundred and twenty-two thousand three hundred and three plus forty-four cents to Bel Air Travel. On September nineteenth, there was another Bel Air Travel charge of a hundred and eight thousand. $294.95, a cellular telephone recording answers for Bel Air Travel. Limousine services were charged to CLS Transportation on September 12th and September 13th for $160,000. The records also show that Chick bought 27 separate hotel rooms at the Luxor Hotel at 50 per night for $1,584.21. And spent six hundred and sixty-six dollars and forty-nine forty-five cents at the tender box in Las Vegas. A charge on September twelfth was made to CLS Transportation for fifty thousand. A charge on September twenty-first was made at the Beverly Hills Hotel for two thousand seven hundred and thirty-eight dollars and eighty-two cents. Besides the actual expenses, American Express has tacked on an additional twenty-five thousand seven hundred and eighty-seven dollars and forty-three cents late fee. A luxury hotel spokesman who asked not to be identified said that the only two hotel rooms were booked by Suge Knight that week and that Knight had billed only for two rooms. Okay, we're going to stop there for right now on the killing of Tupac Shakur. That is chapter 9. Gangster Rap and the Record Companies. I'm going to get into uh, the poems I wrote now to bring some other lightness into this. Um, I do believe that Biggie's getting robbed, though, uh, by Puff Daddy. Um, I don't know. Maybe more of his money should go to his kids and... Um, Violetta Wallace um, but I do believe Biggie is getting robbed and um, Tupac both of them should not be in debt with anything I feel but this next poem uh, is for Tupac and Biggie 
and my father. Um, some of the things don't relate to Tupac and Biggie in this poem and my father. So, but I'm just going to read the whole poem. Okay. You're intelligent represented in so many ways and where your interest lies and times that are history making peace portrayed. In the necessity without your gifts, the earth would be filled with unprofound days. No babies, no development of land, what was laid. Your strength personified through my eyes that makes you want to see mine. Your power can't be matched by another. Failing so deep from hurt and pain makes it hard for you to trust your lover. Actions from the past got you thinking, I don't need you, but the love you give me cannot be replaced by no one but you. Please trust me, no excuse what you put me through. It's about the love we once felt for each other. There's no substitute, no equal to you. Eyes of a tiger or black panther, build of a lion, you're styleful as colorful as an African dancer. Your preparation of it has come clothing companies everywhere, from Kanai, Fubu, Fat Farm to rappers in their gear. Data, you're supreme. You're, founda you're the foundation of our home, the backbone. I'll never let you go. Without you, there's no me. It's that simple. And first and foremost, I think you're beautiful. From skin to muscle tone, can't leave it alone. Your creativity is matched with platinum and gold. Super Bowl rings, trophies, born with athleticism, you're just gold, adored by all who know that one of your most treasured gifts is being natural. The core of you bears it all, no fear of anyone or anything, nothing at all, except the one who brought you here. I thank him for it all. We say to ourselves, for you, i do anything. You see, it's my womanly nature that makes me want to help. Feelings like these, I felt. You're all I am. I'll always need you. You're the man. By Sweet D Cry. Okay, I got one more. Now this, I do a, a TV show. It's called The Sweet D Show on CCTV here in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and it's on Wednesdays. Um, today, uh, I arrived a little bit late to the show, sorry. I wasn't able to talk about happiness. I wanted to talk about happiness a little bit and share what happiness is to me and what things bring me happiness. Happiness is music. You hear your favorite song and you begin to sing along. It brings you joy to sing along and you might start to dance too. Gotta get in the groove changes your mood. Happiness is a walk in the park or woods. Suddenly you have time to reflect on life, breathe the fresh air, or maybe even skip along with your feet. 
walking and thinking of great times in your life, seeing nature at its best. Happiness is doing what you love. Make your occupation something you love to do so you'll enjoy yourself as you're doing it. You'll feel good going there every day. Grant yourself the best. Passion shows in your work. It will also just make you feel fantastic. Happiness is seeing that movie or TV show or video, or in case this podcast, that just touches your heart. One that makes you think or laugh or cry like this podcast. Happiness is love. Happiness is G-O-D. Let's enjoy this podcast with Tupac and Biggie and all those legendary artists like Michael Jackson, Bob Marley, Whitney Houston, Barry White, Luther Vandross, um, Heavy D Guru. Uh, let's enjoy this podcast about all those artists and um, take a look at Happy, the video by Pharrell Williams. So happy, I'm so happy. And I hope I made you happy. And I hope you're happy with this podcast. We're going to end it now, America. Remember that sweet D cry loves you. And I'll see you on the next podcast. I hope you enjoyed those poems and the poem to Tupac and Biggie and my father. Uh, Goodbye, America. I love you, sweetie. Cry. Let it all out. Yeah, yeah, yeah.